Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is December 21st, Friday of 2012, and tonight our guest is the UCLA addiction expert, Addie Jaffe. Um, He's going to talk to us about five damaging myths about addiction and a lot of other topics that we're going to go off on to. Before we start the show, I'm going to do the usual ad for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Addie Jaffe, is with us right now. We're going to bring him on. How are you doing this evening, Addie? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad you came. I I saw your article. I, there was a link from LinkedIn, and I read your article, Five Damaging Myths About Addiction, and I thought it was really good. Um, you know, these are things I've been talking about a long time myself, and I'm, I'm just going to walk through them one by one here. And sure. the first one is about genes. Is there an addiction gene? Right. So um, one of the points that we were trying to make with that piece was that people keep looking for and people keep talking about um, an addiction gene as if addiction is a disorder like Huntington's disease or um, one of those sorts of disorders where we absolutely have identified specific genes or even a single gene that if you have a certain variation of it, you're guaranteed to become addicted in some way. Um, And there is no such thing and chances are, based on everything that we know up to now, is that we're never going to find a single gene or a set of genes that will conform to that sort of understanding of a genetic disease. What there is, is a set of genes that confers a predisposition to substance abuse. But what we also know is that many of those genes are related to a whole host of other mental health disorders, things like depression, attention deficit, anxiety. So what seems to be actually happening is that there are genes that affect individuals' personalities as well as the way that their body actually processes specific drugs like alcohol, cocaine, amphetamine. And what we're actually finding is that those genes can increase or decrease the likelihood that someone will become addicted, but they end up interfacing with environmental influences in a way where there's actually no way for us to say that you know, if you have gene A, B, or C in a specific variation, you're going to or you're not going to become addicted to alcohol. Well, what would most people, most of the experts say is the contribution of genetics compared to the contribution of environment? So it depends on the drug. Um, for smoking cigarettes, for instance, the estimates are some of the highest for genetic contribution, around 60%, which, by the way, still leaves about 40% for environmental effects and the interaction between the environment and the genes. Um, for a lot of other drugs, the estimates range around 50%. For opiates, the estimates range to actually be a little below 50%, around 40% or so. So the range is 40 to 60% genetic influence. Um, well, before we leave this, I'm going to just ask you a personal opinion, which I know there's no scientific expertise on this question, but it's it's one a lot of people have an opinion on. And do you think that uh, choice is involved? I think 
that as long as somebody really understands what we mean when we say choice, then choice is involved, yes. Um, you know, when I did my graduate degree at UCLA, a lot of the work that I did was in behavioral neuroscience. Um, and although we seem to think of all choices or choice in general as the same, you know, um, I pick up my phone when I want to, I dial a number when I want to, I open or close a door. Those all seem to be the same choices as, let's say, picking up a cigarette or having a piece of chocolate or engaging in some other sort of behavior. But in reality, what we know is that the learning mechanisms in the brain are very, very complex and involve a host of different brain areas, especially depending on whether they're reward or punishment-based, um, and involve a host of neurotransmitters, including obviously the one that everybody knows about that has to do with addiction being dopamine. So as long as you have a very clear understanding of the complexity of the machinery that it takes to make choice, then you can say, yes, choice is involved. But that's pretty much the same as asking, you know, if engines are involved in the movement of cars. Yes, mm -hmm. they are, but that doesn't really tell us much about your individual engine. And so what we need to understand is, okay, choice plays a role, but what is each individual's choice-making mechanism shaped like, and what sort of influence does that have on the choices they actually make? Yeah, one uh, example I would like to think of is, well, I quit cigarettes completely. I was totally addicted. And, you know, as long as I was smoking, you know, it was an addictive behavior that was automatic. And, you know, to quit, I had to make that decision that I was going to quit. So quitting was the choice. The default was for the behavior to remain in action. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good choice for somebody who's had experience with addiction. The problem is that what seems to happen is people who've never experienced it say, "Well, you could have made that choice at any other point in time." I want to I want to make a, a comparison that doesn't involve drugs because I think, from my experience when I've given talks, um, you know, I talked to Larry King about this the other day when I was on a show about legalization of marijuana, and he gave a quitting cigarettes example actually, but. I want to give an example that doesn't involve drugs because I think that makes it easier for people to, to have an experience of addiction themselves to relate to. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about a habitual automatic response. When we cross the street in the United States, we've been trained to look left than right because of the direction the cars come through. Um, it's what we call a habitual response or in more technical terms a prepotent response. That means that without really any outside reinforcement, it's something that you've done so many times that your brain knows how to react to it. As soon as you're about to cross the road, you look left, then you look right. What people find who move from a place like the United States to, let's say, England or Australia, where people uh, drive on the other side of the road, you have to make the opposite initial response. You have to look right, then you have to look left. People inevitably find that they have a really hard time initially making that automatic adjustment. Well, a lot of times what happens is they'll start left, realize they're looking the wrong way, they have to start the entire process again on the right side. Um, that's the sort of thing that we're talking about most likely with addiction. It's a process that, whereby anything that's become associated with um, the drug use, including the movement, for instance, for cigarettes, you know, that hand reaching to your mouth and puffing, mm -hmm. that sort of movement, all of those sorts of things, all the sights, the sounds that have become associated with the using, create this prepotent response where the body has an inclination towards a specific production of a behavior. Um, you know, it doesn't help that when you look left and right, 
across the street, you don't get a dopamine jolt, which you do when you use a lot of these drugs. And that reinforces learning back to that choice mechanism you mentioned earlier. And so what probably ends up happening is, you're right, you get to make a choice, but the choice you're making is to break the habit. And so then the work has to do with breaking an automatic or semi-automatic response that the body is already inclined to make. Yeah, and there's definitely a huge amount of work in breaking, well, especially a long-standing addiction. And, huge you amount. Know, and people should be prepared for that. You know, if you just say, uh, it's New Year's Day, so I'm, I'm going to quit cigarettes today, and no plan, uh, you know, you're not likely to succeed, but, you know, planning really helps. Yeah, well, planning really helps. It's actually funny. Um, when you look at cigarette smoking, um, data, for instance, one of the things we find is that most people do quit without official help, and by that I mean even nicotine or um, nicotine patches, I mean, or anything like that. Um, but it normally takes them multiple attempts, so they mm -hmm. have to make that choice multiple times before it actually sticks. So you're right, there is definitely a lot of work, and when we talk to people, you know, you mentioned uh, the HAMS network and people want, looking to make positive change. What we tell people is, you know, we really want to congratulate people on working to make that positive change. It's not going to be easy, but there are tools that can help you to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a hugely addicted smoker. I spent uh, like two months planning my quit. I did quit on the first try, but I spent two months planning. And, you know, I had a huge amount of things in place. I got Chantix. I took Chantix. I, oh, I counted every cigarette I smoked and got down from... Well, 25, but I, you see, I smoked home-rolled, unfiltered Bugler cigarettes, so it's like four Marlboros in wow. one of mine. Yeah. So, but I got down from 25 you, of those. You were hardcore. Oh, very hardcore. I got down from 25 of those a day to two a day. Wow. Um, you know, Over those two months. Yeah. Yeah, over, uh, let's see, it was 40 days. It took 40 days to... Uh, well, this was it was two months of planning, and then the 40 days okay. of putting the plan into action. So it took 40 days to go from 25 a day to two a day. And one of the one of the things I did was I got cinnamon sticks, you know, from the grocery store and chewed on those instead of smoking cigarettes. And that was nice. So you got again, you know, you took the habit of putting something in your mouth and and being able to play with it, um, and you moved that from a cigarette to something else, allowing you to not just um, break the habit, but change it, which is easier. It's easier to replace a habit with something else instead of just completely breaking and leaving you without anything. Yeah, I think I continued chewing on those cinnamon sticks for about a year thereafter. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, because like I said, you, you essentially replaced the cigarette habit with another, which is, you know, one of the first meetings I ever had when I was a graduate student, I met with a woman who was the head of the public health department in Massachusetts, and she very wisely told me that what they've learned over the years in interventions in public health, having nothing to do necessarily with substance abuse, that it's a lot easier to replace a bad habit with something else and make people simply stop. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you, you replace your smoking with chewing on the cinnamon sticks. Yes, indeed. Well, I think we can go on to the next myth in your article, and the myth is that marijuana is a gateway drug. Yeah, um, that's another discussion that came up yesterday on the Larry King Show, and by the way, if anybody wants to see that, they can go on Hulu and look for uh, 
Larry King, I think it's Larry King now, um, and see clips from that. But we were talking about legalization, and obviously the gateway theory for marijuana is one of those things that gets used often. Um, you know, I think that the research on the causal effect of marijuana use leading to the use of other drugs is pretty weak. But I think there is a, a grain of truth to it. And the reason is marijuana is still an illegal drug, even though it's the most frequently used illegal drug in the country. And by the way, only 4 to 5% of Americans actually smoke marijuana, so it's not... You know, when people tell you that everybody smokes weed, um, they just, they're wrong. Um, but because it's the most frequently used illegal drug, it is more predictive of the use of other illegal drugs than, let's say, smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol, because those drugs are legal, even if kids are using them, you know, before mm-hmm. they're of age. And so the, one of the things that probably happens with marijuana is somebody makes an initial decision to use a drug that they know is illegal and that they can get in legal trouble for using, and once you make that decision, you've crossed the legality line, and you're more likely to be willing to make another illegal decision. That is actually one of the arguments that people make for the legalization or decriminalization of marijuana use, is that by eliminating that illegal sort of line in the sand that um, we've drawn, you would make it so that less people who smoke marijuana start using other drugs. Personally, what I think is going to happen is the next most commonly used illegal drug, which fluctuate. Sometimes it's cocaine, sometimes it's um, methamphetamine, sometimes it's heroin. depends on where in the country you look at. That will just become the closest thing to a gateway drug that we have because it's once you cross that line from illegal to from legal to illegal activities that we start getting in trouble. Well, that's part of it. I also see that there's some, there's a fundamental reasoning flaw here of looking from effect to cause. And, you know, if you you know, say everybody or most, the vast majority of people that use heroin uh, previously used marijuana before they started heroin. You know, it's it's this logical flaw. And if you keep looking back, you can say, yeah, but they all drank water first. So water is the gateway drug. If you never drink water, you'll never do heroin. Of course, you'll be dead. Right, but the problem, right, but the problem with that logic is that most, the vast majority of people who drink water actually don't um, use any of the drugs that we're talking about. So what people that that believe in the gateway theory try to do is essentially find that one substance that starts differentiating between people who will use harder drugs and who won't. Like, pretty much like you pointed out, I think there's a problem there and that all you're doing is really describing a situation. You're not really explaining why it's happening. So it's true that um, people who, you know, drink water also end up all the people who use heroin also end up um, drinking water, but it's also true that all the people who drink alcohol end up drinking water. And we don't we know that you know mm-hmm. most people in the world don't ever get into alcohol trouble. So it doesn't that's a descriptive issue uh, more than anything else. I think they are quote unquote correct in describing marijuana as being the first drug entry for illegal drugs. Um, for mm-hmm. most people, but like I said, that's more just by definition. We've created that. That's the most widely used illegal drug there is. That's all we're doing is just describing the situation we've set up. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. there's any causal effect. There's nothing special about marijuana that's making that effect. Yeah, and the the whole problem we run into is the vast majority of people that use marijuana don't ever use any other illegal drug. Yeah, the, I mean, the vast majority of people in the country don't use any other drugs, period. Um, 
you know, the, the rates for heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine use are incredibly low. I mean, we're talking, you know, less than single percentage points sometimes, depending on the age group and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just uh, did a whole bunch of figures on uh, heroin use. It's really, it's very few people use heroin. It's not very, very appealing. Very few people. Very few people. That's why I always joke around that. Um, I mean, I know you, you are a proponent of harm reduction, and it always makes me sad that the reason why we don't do clean needle exchange and things like that is this supposed risk that if we start handing out needles, people will just jump all over the place and start using heroin, which is just a joke. Um, mm-hmm. That is not the reason why people don't use heroin. Yeah, I've worked in needle exchange uh, a couple times. I'm currently working in needle exchange again, and oh, you know, what? Yeah, what we find out is the people that get engaged in needle exchange are more likely to quit. Uh, because, Absolutely. Well, because they start engaging with public health workers. Exactly, and because yeah. well, when you make one small positive change, it's more likely to make another small positive change next, and Pretty soon, it's a big change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's look on to the next myth. Addiction is for life. Right. So I thought this one was an interesting one. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that depending on who you ask, uh, including, let's say, people who believe the American disease model of addiction, people have a real problem with this. So... This really depends on how you define addiction, right? We have a clinical definition of addiction. Right now we're on the DSM-4. Soon enough we'll be on the DSM-5. and Or you can, you can use a, a few different types of, um, of clinical criteria for this sort of stuff. But if we use clinical criteria for addiction, then what we end up finding is that the vast majority of people who meet criteria, for alcohol we have the best evidence of this, for instance, and about 75% of people who meet criteria in their lifetime for alcohol addiction or alcohol dependence will end up not meeting that criteria later on in life with no treatment, um, you know, not having to quit. The vast majority of them go back down to moderate use. And, you know, and essentially what that means is that even though they met criteria for alcohol addiction at one point, they don't meet it at a later point in time, which would suggest that addiction is not always for life. What mm-hmm. people sometimes do with that is they say, well, those people are not really addicts, right? That's uh, that's a response I get to that most of the time. And then what I say is, well, if your only definition for an addict is somebody who can never quit, somebody who can never use moderately, and somebody who can never stop on their own without help, then essentially what you're doing is you're creating a definition of addiction that conforms to only one type of person. But that's not our definition of addiction. It's just not. Definition of addiction has to do with tolerance. It has to do with withdrawal. It has to do with um, consequences for use and all that sort of stuff, you know, the control associated with doing all those sorts of things. Um, Based on all the clinical criteria that we have, somebody should easily be able to fit criteria at one point and not another point. Um, And so I think what we have to start thinking of addiction as is a continuum, a way for us to understand addiction as not a yes or no sort of situation, but something with uh, differing severity levels where people can either change in their severity levels from time one to time two, or maybe even be at some point of severity for the first time you assess them, and then at a later point in time meet no criteria for addiction, even if they're still using, even if they haven't received treatment, just by virtue of the fact that time has passed, maybe their views on things have changed. Maybe something has happened in their life that has made them 
uh, decide to change their own behavior. Yeah, it would be really difficult to define addiction as a person that could never moderate uh, and never control because you couldn't do that until the person's life had actually ended because maybe they can't moderate when they're 80, but when they're 90, then they can achieve it. Right. Well, and I mean, and what, that's what I mean is essentially you hear a lot of times that people say, well, if you were able to moderate, then you were never an addict. And I say, well, that's, if you, you can decide to define anything in that way where it limits anybody outside of a very narrow scope of understanding, right? You can say, well, you know, if you, if you were able to um, regain any level of um, insulin function, then you were never really pre-diabetic. Or, you know, if you were, if you're in full remission uh, from cancer, then we have to give a new name for your disease because it wasn't really cancer, right? Um, if you're going to believe that addiction can be chronic, then we need to be able to start understanding it at different levels, right? People, people can have chronic diseases that have a very short time span before they go into full remission and never have another episode again, um, all the way to people that do suffer chronically over long periods of time. Um, I think we just need to adjust our understanding so we don't become, we don't start looking at addiction as this dichotomous yes or no sort of condition. Mm-hmm. What's well, one of those things? You know, science has to be predictive. You know, if we take a, a group of people who are all at the same level of alcohol dependence, say, and follow them over time, well, some will become abstinent, some will become moderate, some will stay the same, some will deteriorate. But Absolutely. we don't, we we can't predict that. We don't have any factor now currently that predicts who will do what. We don't absolutely. And that's and that's true, and that's part of the reason why people. Some people um, condone abstinence for all because you don't know who's going to end up being able to moderate, so it's just safer to tell everybody to abstain. And while I absolutely agree that that is the safest choice, um, for many, many people, it's not necessarily a welcome choice. It's not a choice they're willing to accept. And so by offering that as the only solution, what we know that we do is we essentially keep many, many people out of seeking help when they actually could have gotten great help to reduce the harm rather than completely abstain, which is really the only acceptable solution nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, abstinence is always the safest solution for any behavior, but my favorite example here is driving an automobile. If right. everyone in the U.S. abstained from driving, there would be no traffic accidents. True. But how are we going to get them all to abstain from driving an automobile? Right, and we would, you know, and we would lose about 20,000 deaths by a motor accident a year, and and maybe everybody would be happier, maybe they wouldn't, but what we try to do is create safer driving environments rather than eliminate driving. I think that's a good that's a good um comparison and i'll I'll quickly really plug our upcoming launch of a program in an outpatient program in Beverly Hills here uh, that is actually going to focus on moderate drinking rather than complete abstinence as a declared goal so the program, which we're calling Alternatives, uh, is actually going to allow our clients to choose moderation as their stated goal early on. It's just going to be a very structured six-month-long outpatient program that allows people under monitoring and with very strict um, guidance to be able to develop moderate drinking patterns. Yeah, I think you said you were going to work with Mark Kern on that. Yeah, Dr. Kern is one of the leaders in moderate 
drinking um, therapy. He's been doing it for 25 years or so right here in Beverly Hills, and uh, he and I are partnering. I'm going to bring in the research evidence-based. We're going to do some pretty extensive data collection. It's really going to be a top-line evidence-based program that's going to generate data and hopefully start moving the field away from considering only abstinence by showing that moderation is very, very feasible even in an outpatient setting. Well, if people would like to go to the show archive, we have uh, interviews with Mark Kern in earlier shows, I think one show earlier, and Mark Kern's been a good friend of mine for a long time, so, you know, I wish you great luck in this endeavor. Thank you very much. Okay, let's look down to the next myth here. I have to scroll down. Um, Scroll too fast. Here we go. Oh, myth number four, drugs fry your brain. Yeah. Um, So, again, this is unfortunately one of those situations where it's not that people are completely wrong. There are drugs that are, and I'm going to get a little more specific again because I studied behavioral neuroscience. Nothing literally fries your brain, obviously, but there are drugs that are very neurotoxic. We know that drugs like methamphetamine, for instance, the stimulants are much worse for this sort of stuff. They... um, they hyperactivate specific areas of the brain, and your brain, especially the neurons in your brain, have these self-destruct mechanisms essentially to um, destroy any cells that are becoming hyperactive so as not to ruin and uh, and kill other neurons. And so it is true that um, especially stimulants can be neurotoxic at, at levels that people normally use. Um, the same thing, obviously, uh, by the way, cannot be said for marijuana, um, and even drugs like MDMA, for instance, which are known even at normally used levels to affect serotonin transmission, we don't know much about long-term uh, recovery from that sort of stuff. Um, opiates, for instance, are a good example of drugs where only at very, very extreme doses over long periods of time um, do we see neurotoxicity. And so instead of generally saying that drugs fry the brain, I think what we need to do is be able to get a clear understanding, be able to separate out the different substances and be able to understand that at certain doses for specific drugs, there is brain damage. Um, But, you know, I have to say that even when we talk about that neurotoxicity, it's normally somewhat isolated, produces significant, and significant means, you know, from a statistically significant research related sort of evidence, it creates a real difference between people who use and don't. But for the most part, it creates subtle changes in people's brain functioning. Um, There are always exceptions to this, and we have to understand that some people who use drugs do go through very marked, um, substantial alterations in the way their brain functions, but those are few and far between. Well, this brings up another topic that's really closely related, and uh, it's still the most common practice today, as far as I know, that uh, psychotherapists will not give you psychotherapy unless you have been abstinent from drugs or alcohol for a certain number of, you know, a certain period of time, six months or something. And, you know, if you are actively using even if you're using moderately, uh, if you have a previous addiction diagnosis or something, you know, you're often refused uh, psychotherapeutic treatment. Are we talking about medication or are we talking about generally talk therapy? I talk therapy. Okay, maybe because I'm in Los Angeles, 
what I see here is pretty different. Um, I know many therapists here who absolutely will work with people who are using, although what you are correct about is for the most part, unless there's never been a history where there are no issues um, related to the substance abuse, most of those therapists will address it at some point. I know a handful of therapists who actually will allow clients to be using while they're in therapy. Um, but most most of the people that I know around here, and again, maybe Los Angeles is different than other places, will allow clients with no history of substance abuse to be using moderately. Um, obviously, that applies to alcohol, right? When mm-hmm. 50% of the population uses alcohol. Um, it applies probably more in this state to marijuana as well. When it gets to some of the harder drugs, again, they're really, you're right, there has to be no history of um, addiction or abuse of any sort. Otherwise, people start getting a little touchy. Yeah, in my own experience, um, one time I was seeking uh, psychotherapeutic help for depression, and uh, the person said, um, have you ever had a diagnosis of alcohol dependence? Or they said, have you ever been through treatment for alcoholism? And I said, yes, because I had. And they said, have you been abstinent for six months? And I said, no, I drink once a week. They said, oh, you can't have any psychotherapy until you go through our substance abuse treatment program and you're clean for six months. And I said, I drink once a week. What the fuck are you talking about? You know, when I went, when I checked myself into treatment, I was drinking all the time. And when I got out, I was drinking worse than when I went in. So what, what, what are you thinking about? I did this on my own, you know, and no, absolutely not. And you have to go through our check into our substance abuse treatment program. You know, it's crazy. Well, unfortunately, that seems like a, a person that not only has a specific orientation, but also um, sounds like a specific interest in individuals checking into their treatment facility. Um, so that that could be part of the reason there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there are definitely individuals who will not accept the ability of anybody who's met criteria for any sort of substance abuse um, in the past to be able to moderately use. I know myself, I uh, I used to be addicted to methamphetamine, and when I tell people that I, well, now I don't even drink moderately because the Board of Psychology in California has asked me to test on an ongoing basis, so I abstain from alcohol. But before they asked me for that, for seven years, I was drinking moderately, um, successfully without any problems. Um, but when I would tell people that, essentially what I would get from a specific subset of people is this indication that as far as they're concerned, I'm in an ongoing relapse. Um, and, you know, I never used any other drugs, drank moderately with no consequences. But, yeah, some people just can't accept that somebody with substance abuse history can ever use any mind-altering substance. Yeah, and the things that we've learned from people like Andrew Tatarski and Pat Denning, they've done uh, psychotherapy with people who are actively using drugs and heavily or even addictively using drugs. And what happens is the psychological issues get better and the substance abuse issues get better at the same time. So there's no reason to refuse psychotherapy to drug users. Plus, I mean, if we're going to be talking about this, one of the things that I never understand is because a lot of those people that you're mentioning is not being willing to um, to allow treatment for an ongoing user. Essentially, believe in the American disease model, the chronic, ongoing, progressive disease model. And so, what never really made sense to me is, if you're in the helping profession, aren't you supposed to help a client who is seeking help? Um, 
even if they're not your ideal client, if they, even if they're presenting with some behavior you're unhappy about, if they were presenting with ideal, an ideal situation, their problem would probably be less severe. So you're getting a client, they're telling you that they're having problems, and essentially the response, and this is, by the way, the response for, let's say, a treatment provider who is saying to somebody who wants to quit heroin, well, you can't quit heroin and keep drinking. You have to keep you have to quit both at the same time, mm-hmm. um, or, we won't, or we won't give you treatment. Essentially what they're saying to somebody is, okay, well, you, you're looking to make your life better, but we can't help you with that until you can make your life better the way that we envision it being. Yeah, yeah. And one of the classic situations that has occurred all too often and still occurs sometimes is someone will show up uh, for mental health treatment and say, I'm depressed. And then they get duly diagnosed and they're told, you have to go to substance abuse treatment first. And then they get yeah. referred to substance abuse treatment and they say... And they get told they have to get mental health treatment first. Yeah. It's, yeah. So they get turned down by both places and you know they're already having a hard enough time to even get out of bed in the morning and you know you get double whammy like that what's what's your next reaction going to be probably drink more than you ever did before <laughs> yeah it's probably not it's not probably very helpful to their self-image is it not at all not at all well let's look at the last one you have on the list here that you have to hit rock bottom yeah that's a big one for me um you hear that a lot in specific circles. You hear that a lot in 12-step circles. Um, and to me, I don't really understand the point of that myth, um, especially because one of the other things that goes along with it often is, well, everybody's bottom is different. Right? Mm-hmm. So essentially what you're saying is you have to hit a point where you're willing to change. Well, that seems pretty obvious, but saying you have to hit bottom sounds as if you know, your life has to get pretty crappy for you to be willing to make a change. And, I mean, I know for a fact that's not true. I treat a bunch of people, uh, I clients, I, I run a young adult group at uh, Matrix Institute in West L.A. here, and I know a host of people who come in pretty early in their problem. Don't get me wrong, I get some clients who, are, who have some pretty severe problems with their use as well. But I see some clients who come pretty early on are nowhere near what a lot of people would consider a bottom. And one of the issues that they deal with sometimes is they feel like, well, I feel like I'm, you know, you've heard this phrase before, I'm, my bottom was too high. Maybe uh, maybe I haven't hit bottom yet. And I say, well, you would like for things to get worse than this? Is that is that sort of the idea that you're getting? And I think part of that comes from this understanding that things really have to hit a low, low level of functioning for you to be able to get better. Um, what we know, if you look at things like the readiness to change or stages of change model from, um, Rhode Island, or you look at some of the other motivational interviewing sort of stuff from New Mexico and Bill Miller, is that what you need is an understanding of the fact that there's a problem. You don't even have to really be ready to change. You just have to know that something is wrong. As long as you have some sort of sense that something might need to change and maybe maybe things aren't exactly as they should be, we can probably help you. And not only can we help you at that level, we can probably help your motivation level, you know, through motivational interviewing and motivational enhancement techniques. We can probably help you be more prepared to change. Um, but there's nothing in there that says that you have to hit bottom. There's a level of awareness that probably needs to happen. It's probably sort of hard to help somebody who is not aware that something might need to change, that there's a change coming. Uh, but as long as there's awareness and some ambivalence about 
what this life course is bringing on, we can help bottom or not. Yeah, in my experience where I found this used, well, it was used against me, and it would be in AA meetings if I would be there and I would start questioning some of the dogma and say, well, why do you have to believe in a higher power? Or why do you have to say you're powerless? And I would be told, you need to go out and drink more. And once once you suffer enough, you'll come crawling back to us on your knees for help. I love that. I love that. I love that notion. Again, it takes me back to that idea of if we are here to help people, we don't send them out um, to suffer. I don't. I don't understand that logic. I never will. Of uh, well, maybe you're not ready for this yet. Go out and drink some more. Go out and use some more. Essentially, it's this notion of when you are broken enough, you'll be willing to accept our system. And my sense is, well, maybe if I'm not willing to accept a specific system, another system will still work and do well by me and offer me the solution I need. Maybe people who are broken beyond repair maybe do subject to one specific kind of treatment system, but all the people who don't get to that level can still benefit from, you know, the myriad options that we have for uh, for treatment without ever having to get to this level where they're back on knees doing anything. Yeah, I think, you know, with the number of options we have out there, um, uh, AA is fine for the people it works for. I have a lot of my friends in needle exchange that are, well, they're members of Narcotics Anonymous, and they give out clean needles, but, you know, they say, we're keeping people alive until that they can decide to quit for themselves or decide to join NA. We're not going to tell them what to do, but they're not going to quit if they're dead. So right. a lot of my co- yeah a lot of my colleagues are NA members and that's good for them and I don't have any argument with them but you know they're in harm reduction they don't argue with me if I go my own way uh, but there's yeah. so many other oppor- uh, uh, so many other options as well there's smart recovery there's cognitive behavioral approach there's psychodynamic approaches which if they're applied right they can be quite effective that's what Andrew Tatarsky does he says you know classical psychoanalysis doesn't really work so well it needs to be a little more active but if you make it a little more active a psychodynamic approach can be really effective um yeah and you know so there's I, think, har- I think with the combination of medication mm-hmm. a, a whole slew of different behavioral approaches like CBT psychodynamic motivational enhancement therapy MI motivational interviewing uh, and again, including 12 steps for the people that that works for. Again, I have nothing against the 12 steps. I just don't believe they're by any stretch the only solution. Um, I think with the combination of all these different things and different support options you mentioned, smart recovery, you know, 12 steps, rational recovery, moderation management, people can get better. They just need to know about the different options. Well, I think we covered the main topics. Uh, what would you like to leave us with before we close out the show for the night? Well, I think one of the main things, one of the points that I had in that article was to just open people's minds up, hopefully, a little bit to the notion that there are many paths to getting better. I think that's uh, that seems like it, it works well with the HAMS network sort of approach. I personally have no vested interest in this specific way somebody gets better. What I feel badly about is when people get shamed, stigmatized, or lured into believing that there's only one specific way for them to improve, or maybe even that there's no way for them to improve. And so the reason I sort of wrote that article was to let people know, okay, look, you're not necessarily screwed for life. 
you know, even if your parents and your entire family were alcoholics and addicts, there's probably a way out for you. Um, what you need to do is get a more complete understanding of what the problem that we're talking about is, seek out tools, and what I always tell my clients, you know, if what I'm giving you didn't work and you tried it and you gave it your best shot, try something else. Maybe something else will work for you. You know, nobody has a monopoly on this treatment approach. There are a whole bunch of tools. Go out and look for help. Don't quit because somebody told you, you know, maybe you don't want this bad enough. Go experiment more and come back if you make it. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Addy Jaffe. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to talking again. Oh, very good. Everyone, uh, come back next Thursday at our usual time, and our guest will be Donald Grove. Uh, Donald Grove is a harm reductionist from back in the early days, in the 90s, with ACT UP, when it was illegal to hand out needles in New York City. He's going to tell us a lot of history about how harm reduction came about in New York City. So I'm looking forward to seeing you all then, and we'll talk to you all later. Good night. <laughs>